Welcome to Hope Renewed, the podcast of PIR Ministries. Thanks for connecting to Hope Renewed, the in-depth podcast about pastoral renewal and restoration. I'm Tom Jameson, and along with co-host Sean Nemechek, we explore the issues and challenges pastors face and help cultivate a renewed hope for healthy ministry lives. At PIR Ministries, we have a particular focus on serving pastors in small church or what we call ordinary church contexts. Uh, too often, these leaders are under-resourced and face the constant pressure of trying to apply big church principles in an effort to create a healthy ministry culture in a small context. Our hope is that we can provide encouragement and point them to resources which will help small church pastors and leaders keep from being overwhelmed by discouragement. Yeah, Tom, today we have a, a special guest. I first met this guest at uh, Chris Vitarelli's conference in Fenton, Michigan, Small Church Big Deal. Some of our listeners may remember the interview we did with Chris Vitarelli. Uh, well, we have a very special guest. Carl Vaders has been in pastoral ministry for almost 40 years. Uh, his heart is to help pastors of small churches find the resources to lead well and to capitalize on the unique advantages that come with pastoring a small church, something virtually every pastor will do at some point in their ministry. He also believes that big and small churches can and should work together more often to the benefit and blessing of everyone. Carl's the author of four books, uh, The Grasshopper Myth, Small Church Essentials, 100 Days to a Healthier Church, and The Church Recovery Guide. Carl is the teaching pastor of Cornerstone Christian Fellowship, a healthy small church in Orange County, California, where he's ministered for over 27 years with his wife, Shelley. They have three kids and two grandkids. Carl Vaders, welcome to Hope Renewed. Thanks. It's good to be with you. Man, I need to update my bio. My bio is almost 40 years in ministry this month. I, is my 40th anniversary in pastoral ministry. Wow. Just, as you said it, I just realized, oh yeah, it's this month. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. It almost, it almost passed by without me even noticing it. <laughs> <laughs> that happens when the uh, hair starts getting a little lighter on top. But well, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll trust you for that then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just... Wanting to really delve into those 40 years of experience, then, um, Carl, tell us a little bit about yourself and the story of your ministry. Sure. Yeah, I'm actually a third generation pastor. My father was and my grandfather was. So uh, when I was, you know, in, in uh, late in high school and then early in junior college, just getting my general ed out of the way, people asked, you know, what I wanted to do when I grew up. I, several of them would say, I think you're going to be a pastor just like your dad and your grandfather. And I, I felt a call to ministry, but I knew that pastoral ministry is not exactly, you don't go into it because it's the family business. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a good reason. And I knew that enough to resist it until finally I just had to give into it. No, I've got my own individual call here. So, <clears throat> so I've really been in, you know, in a pastor's home from, I was raised by a preacher's kid. I am a preacher's kid. And then I raised preacher's kids. Mm. I was literally born as my dad was preaching the Sunday evening service. He dropped my mom off at the hospital. They said, she's not giving birth till tomorrow. She's a long way away. Go ahead, do what you uh -huh. need to do and come back. And while he was gone preaching, I was born. So that, that it, it, <laughs> church doesn't get any more baked into a person yeah. than it does into me. Do you remember the text he was preaching? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I don't, of course. But <laughs> 
But uh, so I spent my my years in the church. And then um, when I started in pastoral ministry, about five years into pastoral ministry, so this would be the early 80s, um, everything shifted. Like when I was in Bible college, about half of the textbooks I used, I borrowed from my dad because they were the same books. Hmm. And five years later, the college, the Bible college students that were coming through our church because we were near the college, it was all different stuff. The church growth movement had hit and hmm. everything shifted. And I looked at it and went, there's a lot of good stuff here. I've got to kind of unlearn some of my stuff and relearn the new stuff. Mm. And I really jumped on the church growth train really, really, really fast. And then moved to Orange County, California. We live just eight miles south of Disneyland and have now for, I guess we're pushing 30 years now, 20, 27, 28 years. And just at the time, uh, you know, Rick Warren was just getting really hitting some stride at, at Saddleback. They weren't even in a permanent place yet at the time. Uh, you know, this is, <clears throat> we're just a few miles from the original Calvary Chapel, the original vineyard, what people, some people call the original megachurch, you know, Crystal Cathedral. It's, you know, it, it, there's a lot going on here and a ton of people. So I thought, I'm going to do that. Uh, <laughs> and um, I did everything in the books. I did everything that they told me. I did everything in some of the extra classes that I even took. And while the church got strong and got healthy, it never got big. And we don't have the, you know, quote unquote, excuse of not having a population center here. There's tons of people around. And I, long story short, I almost burned out, almost left the church, actually went to pastoral counseling for went to a to a former pastor who was running a counseling ministry at that time, and just poured my heart out to him. Mm. And I remember distinctly when he looked at me, he said, Carl, you have to figure out how to redefine success in ministry. Yeah. And I, I didn't know what it meant. I said, I don't even know what that means. He says, yeah, I don't either, but we have to figure that out together. <laughs> and then he said a sentence to change my life. He said, you have to figure out how to define success in ministry without numbers attached to it. Wow. Because chasing the numbers is killing you. And then he said, uh, if it wasn't for the numbers, would you say your church is healthy? And he barely had the question out of his mouth. And my response was so immediate, it actually caused him to step back. I went, oh yeah, it's an amazing church. He, I, it literally caused him pause. And he went, you answered that really fast. <laughs> mm. So I said, yeah, that's part of the problem. We've got this wonderful, healthy, strong, missional, outreaching church with tons of people around us. I'm doing all the church growth stuff. And it's not like, oh, here's why it's not working because the, the church is lousy or because we're doing this bad. or be mm. No, every... Like, like I've had experts come in. I have visiting pastors come in and every one of them says, well, this church won't be small for long. This church is so strong, so healthy, so outreaching. Well, first couple of times you hear that, it's awesome. But, you know, the 20th time in five years, it's kind of <laughs> like, when, you know? So the health and strength and missionality of our church was actually part of my frustration because this should be producing numbers. And it wasn't. And so that was when I had to shift to maybe the Lord has something else in mind for us. And as I look around at other churches, I realize we're not the only ones. This We are not the exception to the rule. We're the rule. Hmm. Most churches do not get bigger, even if they get healthy and strong and are reaching people for Jesus. So something else is going on here. And that was, you know, maybe... 10, 12 years ago, in the intervening couple of years, I wrote my first book. And really, since that's hit, this has been just a real passion of mine to help other small church pastors and, and uh, as you say, normal-sized churches um, be okay and understand their mission is good, even if they don't have the numerical growth that are off, is often said is inevitable, because it's not inevitable. Yeah, Carl, when we uh, first met at, at Chris Vitarelli's conference, I came to that conference as a, a recovering 
uh, from burnout and, and just looking for some sense of encouragement. And Chris did a great job, but your, your talks there were, were amazing. Uh, you really had a sense of what a small church pastor needs to hear. And I think you, you captured that in your book, The Grasshopper Myth. Uh, can you tell us a little bit of the story behind that book? Sure. Um, well, I was I was going through this season and I was just making these discoveries about small congregations and I was teaching it to our staff and, you know, a couple of times a year, we'd have like a, a volunteer retreat and I'd, I'd teach these things. And I as I kept finding things, because I, I couldn't find a book that just had all of this in one place. And I get frustrated by it. And finally, my wife looked at me and said, quit whining that nobody's written the book and write the book. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it for wives. Huh? Yeah, exactly. So, so I looked at Shelly and I go, but who's going to read a book? By me, I'm a small church pastor. Nobody's ever heard of. Nobody's going to read my book. She said, well, who else is going to read a book about pastoring a small church other than a small church pastor? And how many famous ones do you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, you're the one who's got the passion for it. You're the one who's driving me crazy about it. <clears throat> Write the book that you think ought to be written. So I just t- took all of the bits and pieces and start putting it together. Th- you know, The last thing I threw in was my story because I thought, Nobody's interested in my story of an average small church pastor who got frustrated by, you know, by the numbers thing, but I added it in kind of last minute. And then in the read throughs, I kept asking, should I just take that out? And they were like, no, that's the glue that holds the thing together. Like you just said, Sean, it was like my story as, as commonplace as it is, makes it universal. It's, there are so many people who go, oh, you're not the only one. That's me too. Uh, because it's not either heroic or horrific, as I put in the grasshopper myth. And um, and so, yeah, I, I wrote that book. I didn't even call any publishers because I knew no, small books on small church ministry do not sell. And I had no platform and I knew nobody would take me on. So I just, I called a printer friend that I knew and said, how much would it cost to print these books and found out and raised the money and did a self-publication of it and then started the blog to basically the extras that didn't quite fit in the flow of the book, I figured, well, I'll put them up on a blog and maybe we'll sell a few books through the blog. And the thing took off like crazy from the very beginning, just wow. immediately because because of the story, I guess, was so common because there was very little out there doing the same thing and it just shocked everybody. It still continues to shock me every year how much it continues to sell. It's still self-published. My next three books are with Moody, uh, but the first book is still self-published and it still sells. It doesn't you know it doesn't make any sense uh you know in the natural uh except that yeah it's everybody's story and there's a real need for that out there so the grasshopper myth what is the grasshopper myth great question yeah um the grasshopper myth comes from the book of numbers where the spies go into the promised land and 10 of the 12 come back with the message we seem there were giants in the land we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. Hmm. And the premise behind that is it, they didn't say the grasshopper, the giant saw us as grasshoppers. They say we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And then they say we look the same to them. Hmm. So the, the grasshopper myth is, is the idea that starts usually within each of us that I'm not as valuable to the kingdom of God because my ministry is small. So if you see yourself as small as you, or if you see your, your ministry as irrelevant because it's smaller, if you see the grasshopper in your mirror, that's a myth. Hmm. And if you don't see a grasshopper in your mirror, nobody else will see a grasshopper in you. 
The big churches around me are, are not meaning to make me feel bad. I did that to myself. And then when I read their book or went to their conference, I reinforced that within myself. I allowed them to make me feel like a grasshopper, even though they weren't intending to do that. That starts with me. So I have to take, take, you know, take, take my own self image into hand. Hmm. You, nobody else is responsible for how I see myself. I am responsible for how I see myself. And if I refuse to see myself as a grasshopper, it's amazing how quickly everybody else's perception of me changes as well. <laughs> yeah. So that's where it, the title comes from. It, it resonates with a, a bit of wisdom I heard at one time uh, when along the lines of uh, your relevancy isn't based on the size of the church you serve. It's based on the size of the God you serve. There we go. In whatever context that, that might be in. Yeah. seems like that book came at kind of the leading edge of a move of the Holy Spirit to call pastors into recognizing small churches have something to offer and uh, that they don't have to kind of follow the large church model, that they, they have unique things to offer themselves. Um, in the last year, we've noticed that it's become more essential for churches to become adaptable. Um, COVID's really changed the, the landscape of things. And all along, you've said that small churches may be better suited to adaptability and change, even though sometimes they, they may not have that reputation. Um, can you illustrate to us why this is so and why it's so important? Yeah, I, 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 that, there is that double prong to it. Yeah, we have the reputation for not being adaptable and, um, quite frankly, aren't as adaptable often as our large church counterparts, but we should be, <laughs> mm -hmm. it, 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 uh, you know, it should, it should be easier for a smaller group of people to move quickly than for a large group of people to move quickly. I mean, it's just right. It just makes sense. Moving a small army instead of a big army should be easier. Um, and, you know, but, and, and of course the challenges when they, when we don't adapt quickly is not because of our size, it's because of attitude issues and so on. Some attitude issues of which are keeping a congregation small. Let's be frank about that. Not every small church is meant to be small. Some are small because they're stuck, but I push back against the idea that everybody who's small is stuck. <laughs> right. Yes. But yeah. So we, 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 we've got to make that distinction. So, uh, well, here, here's, here's an example. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I mean, in my situation personally, on there was a Sunday last March in which uh, we had heard about this disease going around. In fact, my wife and I, Shelly and I, were in Australia doing some small church conferences, and we didn't realize this till we got home. We were staying in a hotel one mile from Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson as they were catching COVID. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and we didn't realize it until we got home and it was on the news. It was, and they mentioned where they were and we, went, we were just there. <laughs> it was less than a mile from us. So we were there as that was happening. We come home, there's this thing going around. And on Sunday, we do this little joke about maybe we should just, you know, do air hugs and air high fives today instead of actually hugging and high fiving each other. And, but we didn't think much more about it than that. On Tuesday, we were told churches, restaurants, theaters, everything indoor closed down. We don't know for how long, we assume just for a couple of weeks. And by, we knew that by Sunday, we were going to have to have our entire service online. And we weren't live streaming at the time. We'd been talking about it. We've been trying to get our ducks in a row, mm. but it was like, no, we are not up and running now. So in a in big churches at the time, they their adaptation was 
was significant, but smaller than ours. They were already on live. So now it's just a matter of telling everybody that's all we're doing now for a little while. But for a lot of smaller churches like ours, it was a bigger shift. We had not been online. So we had to figure out how to film it. We had to get everybody in to actually shoot the video of it. We had to tell everybody in the congregation how to find us, where we would be, establish the, everything on the YouTube channel, um, figure out how to do a YouTube premiere because the, we couldn't live stream it because we had Wi-Fi issues at the church. And on our team figured out how to do that in four days. And doing that while we were isolated in homes. So we're emailing each other back and forth, right? It, it was so that that's an example of extreme adaptability now big and small both adapted but it was a mm -hmm. bigger adaptation for small churches and yet we were able to pull it off not everybody could pull it off in a week we just you know i live in orange county so we've got you know videographers and tech people all over the place we don't have anybody here who can nail two pieces of wood together but we've got a lot of high tech people you know <laughs> So, and, and then, and then for the next few months, it was constant conversations I was having. How do we do this? How do we get up to speed on this? But they did it. They made the adaptations and those were big adaptations. Mm. Now we're hopefully at the end where we're coming out of pandemic, the vaccines and the numbers seem to be looking good. Uh, and let's hope we are, as we are, as we are coming out of it, I'm, here's what I'm expecting. I'm expecting that small churches now are going to be gathering in person and back to uh, uh, back to something resembling normal quicker than our big church counterparts, because we can socially distance. We can put protocols in easier than our big church friends can, and so we have an opportunity now. I think, kind of a small church moment, and I also think people are going to be looking for an environment that is going to be smaller. They're not going to be comfortable in the massive crowd for a while, maybe for a mm. couple of years. Yeah. Because the way what we're comfortable with has changed in the last little while. So um, right now, so we made the adaptation before. Now, if we can recognize what's coming and we adapt again for that, I think we have a real opportunity to reach people who uh, are, are looking for hope and faith again, not sheep stealing from the big churches, but people who are actually, you know, who are, who are feeling the trauma of this moment and are looking for answers. And we have an opportunity to be there for them. And it seems to me that what the world is going to be looking for or is looking for is that sense of community that is, I think, more readily accessible in a small church context than perhaps in a larger church context. Uh, and, and that that will be very attractive to, to drawing people. Yeah, I think your phrasing readily accessible is, is an important distinction there because there are some people, as we know, who just think, well, small churches are friendlier. No, no, <laughs> we're not. <laughs> no, but, but the opportunity for fellowship is more readily accessible. Uh, you know, on a Sunday morning in a smaller congregation, you can get great worship and you can get a great message from the word and you can get close fellowship with a group of people. Yeah. If you go to a big church, you can get great worship and you can get great ministry from the word, but you've got to go to another meeting that week to a small group to get the close fellowship. Mm -hmm. So it's there. Big, healthy big churches push small groups for exactly that reason, but it's not as readily accessible as it is in a smaller congregation. And, and that's an important distinction for us to make because right now, if somebody leaves their house when they have all the access to everything at their house. If they leave their house on a Sunday morning to come to your church, if they leave your church then and can't readily identify what it was that was worth them leaving their house for, they're not going to come back again because hmm. they can get better sermons online. They can get 
a better quality of music online. What they can't get online is actual people who care for them in person in a place. And if we're not stepping up for the things that small churches should do best, which is community, which is relationships, which is communication, which is, you know, the, the subtle reading of body language to say you, you say you're fine, but I don't think you are. Mm. Um, those little things you cannot do online. You cannot do at a distance. They can only be done in person. And those are the things we need to be uh, working harder on than ever before, because if they show up in person, that's what they're looking for. So in the grasshopper myth, you share this story about uh, the Higgins craft, the landing craft used on, yeah. on D-Day. Uh, and, and you talk about how you know, kind of the big church and small church can work together uh, to accomplish things. Uh, how do you see that playing out in the, these next uh, few months or years? Yeah, uh, just for accuracy's sake, in case somebody buys the grasshopper myth and gets disappointed, that's actually the small church essentials. Just oh, okay. <laughs> I don't want anybody right. buying the wrong book to get that story. Um, although if you buy both, I won't be upset. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> be safe, buy both, you'll be good. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and, and just real quick for those who aren't familiar with it, the the, the story is um, uh, very very short. I'll tell it. The, the the boat, the landing boats that were used and that you've seen in every D Day movie that got the uh, American troops onto the shores of D-Day, uh, of Normandy on D-Day. Uh, those were called Higgins boats. And um, I tell a story of how those came about, uh, how the stubbornness of the guy named Higgins who created the boat and who insisted on using them and finally got through all the bureaucracy to get them there. And then how on that day, the big and small worked together. So you had the destroyers and you had the battleships that were at a distance, but couldn't get the boots on the ground. You had the Higgins boat that could put boots on the ground, but couldn't carry heavy munitions. You had the, the, the planes flying over to drop both supplies and bombs that could not be brought in, you know, by the soldiers coming off the Higgins boats. And in that, you know, in that assault, you needed big and large and a coordination of the two. And I think one of the challenges we've got in the church today is, uh, there is a growing uh, chasm between the big and small congregations that is really unhealthy for the body of Christ. And it's come about, I believe, as an unintentional byproduct of good things, an unintentional byproduct of the church growth movement. And I, I'm appreciative of the church growth movement. I you know, I, I made some complaints about how it didn't work for me earlier, but that doesn't make it bad. Hmm. Uh, it just isn't for everybody. Uh, a lot of good things have come out of the church growth movement, but one of the unintended consequences is this division between big and small. As a quick example, when I was a kid, you could go to any really large, well-churched American city and not find a church of over a thousand people, right? The biggest church, you, you could count churches over a thousand people on your hand. You had Rex Humbard, you had Criswell, you had Schuller, you had Oral Roberts, you had, right? Very quickly, you start running out of names right? And I'm not talking megas, like 10,000. I'm talking over a thousand, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. So, the, but the average size church was 75, just like it pretty much is today. So the difference between the average size church in town, 75, and maybe the biggest church in a large, well church city might only be 750 or so. So we're only talking 10 times. In those situations, especially if those two congregations were of the same denomination, the only difference between those churches would be that one church had more staff and a bigger choir. They were singing the same songs out of the same hymn book using the same denominational curriculum, right? You could go from one to the other and get the same experience, just a little larger in one place. But then when churches started getting bigger, and there's nothing wrong with this happening, it's just the nature of what happened. As the churches then started getting bigger, now that you get into the thousands and now into the tens of thousands, now you've 
you, you have to pastor a church of 10,000 radically differently than you had to pastor a church of 750 and that you had to pastor an average sized church of 75. You just have to, you can't, you can't, it's, it, it's a different set of rules. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's complex systems that are just different that I thank God I'm not burdened with quite frankly, because <laughs> it would drive me crazy. But because of that, if you've got a pastor of say a church of 20,000 at a conference and they're speaking to a pastor of a church of say 2000, the pastor of the church of 2000 just drops a zero and does virtually everything that's done in the pastor church of 20,000. And, and they can pretty much do it all. And even a pastor of a church of 500 can use most of what's being said, even though it was only learned for the huge church, it can still be adapted mostly mm -hmm. to a church of 500, but the church of 50, the typical church in America looks at it and goes, I can't use any of that. Right. So there's, so it's, it's unintended. Nobody's intending to leave the small church out, but if you're pastoring a church of 50 and you go to a big church growth conference and, and there's an Andy Stanley or a Rick Warren up there and they're speaking, and these are great speakers with great leadership principles. And I, I got nothing against any of them at all. Okay. They get up there and they speak there. What relates to you from what they say is minuscule. It just, the size differential is so, so big. And so they're not leaving the meaning to leave me out of the conversation. They don't even know they're me leaving my church out of the conversation, but the size differential is causing that. And so uh, one of the things I want to do on my ministry is not put anybody else down for their size because size has nothing to do with righteousness at all one way or the other and try to reach across and to help even the bigger churches understand, here's how you're leaving us out and here's how you can include us and to help the small church pastor go give you a filter. Here's how you can get more out of even the big church conferences, but you got to put a proper, you got to have an understanding of the differences in order to get there. So yeah, there's a growing division, but I think, I think we can overcome that division if we first of all notice it and secondly, put some principles in place to overcome it. Pastoral ministry can be painful, and sometimes that pain can become all-encompassing. Pastor, if you are hurting, if you are stuck, if you are burned out, if you have been forced out of ministry, if you have lost your job because of moral compromise, please hear what we know at PIR Ministries. You are not alone. God still loves you. God is not done with you, and He is still accomplishing His purposes in your life. We are here to help you find new hope. Contact us at pirministries.org. Well, since we're speaking of small church essentials, um, the, the chapter in that book on church culture, I thought was just worth the price of the whole book just by itself. It was eye-opening and, and phenomenal, but I I'm wondering if in this last year with COVID and the pandemic, um, how has a, a church leader's ability to shape culture changed in small churches? Well, that's a good one. I haven't I haven't been asked that specifically for culture and for the pandemic, but I, I yeah I I don't believe it's changed. But here how here's how it's been um, maybe magnified. Again, here's an, a, another one of the differences between the big and the small. The big church conference pastors will tell you that if you're the pastor, um, you're going to be the one who sets the culture in the church. You need to continue to reiterate that culture in the church so that it infuses throughout the church. And in a large church or in a startup church, that is true. But if you are in a smaller church, and if the church is older, and if the people in it are older, 
And if you're new and if you're young, the more, the, the more you add those pieces together, if you go in and you think, oh, I'm going to establish the culture of the church and I'm just going to tell them how church culture should be, uh, well, God bless you in your next church. Uh, <laughs> that is not going to go over well. Um, because the, the, the older the church is, the longer the church has been around, the newer you are and the younger you are, um, here's how culture works in a smaller congregation. You don't set the culture, pastor. Here's what happens. One, you have to show them you understand the culture. Mm -hmm. Two, you have to show them what you appreciate about the culture. Mm -hmm. And after you've done that, three, they will give you limited opportunity to participate with them in moving the culture forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and all of those adjectives matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they will give you limited opportunity to participate with them in moving the culture forward, but only after you show them that you understand the culture and the parts of it that you appreciate, because that's the way it works in a small church. So now in pandemic, how has that adjusted? I think it's magnified in some ways. And I think hopefully if we've stepped up well, it's given us greater opportunity to lead it forward. I, I've been trained for 40 years how to bring change into dying churches, how to unst unstick stuck churches, right? Uh, but in this last year, uh, I don't have to try to change anything. <laughs> change is in the air. It's just a matter of hanging on through it, right? But that also provides us with an opportunity. If we have and are stepping up well to navigate the church through unparalleled seasons of change. And if we've done it well and continue to do it well, they will trust us more. So you can actually, uh, you know, get, you know, five years worth of trust built in one year mm -hmm. if we do it well because of the, the hyperdrive of change. And because they, they can't look at the pastor and go, well, it's your fault that we've got a pandemic. No, we're, we're all stuck. It's not my, I'm not making the change. I'm just trying to figure out our way through it. So if we do this well, we earn a greater degree of trust. We put more credits in the bank and, uh, and then later on, they're going to trust us more when we step up and we want to say, how about we do this? So we have a chance to magnify our potential impact and our potential leader leadership footprint in a small church if we've done it well and we continue to do it well. Hmm. So your most recent book is called The Church Recovery Guide, a subtitle, How Your Church, How Your Congregation Can Adapt and Thrive After a Crisis. Hmm, I wonder what uh, brought that title about. Uh, so what's the big takeaway you hope churches, church leaders uh, will gain from this book? Oh, boy, there's so much in there. Uh, the, the primary thing is um, we cannot have the mindset of, uh, waiting for this is over so we can go back to normal. Mm -hmm. uh, one, there will, there's no, there's never any going back. Stop looking in the rearview mirror. Not even in the, not even in the rearview to 2019. <laughs> that is gone. But there is a way forward. There is a way forward, and um, it, it's, if if the gospel is about, it, the the wonderful thing that makes the gospel so adaptable to every situation, but particularly to situations of difficulty like this, the gospel message holds two parallel and almost opposite truths together in, in, in tension. One of them is we worship God who has never changed and will never change. And, and we receive information from him from a library of books whose newest documents are 2000 years old. Mm 
That's a whole lot of consistency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and on the other hand, the entire message of the documents contained in scripture is about redemption and radical life transformation. So absolute eternal consistency on the one hand and radical transformation on the other hand. And each one of those is essential. If you remove either one of them, you do not have a proper understanding of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so in times of great disruption and great confusion and great change, we have an opportunity to bring, first of all, the consistency of eternity into the situation. And then we don't even have to be afraid of the change because, well, the gospel is about change. So we, we, you know, of all people in the world, Christians ought to be used to the fact that things change and God's going to stay consistent through them. Um, it, it, early in the book, I think in the first chapter, so this may be as good a takeaway from the book as anything. Um, I, I say in times of change, leaders bring stability in, or in, in times of stability, leaders bring change in times of change, leaders bring stability. Mm. So for 40 years, we've been a time of one of one of the greatest times of stability in human history in the American church. I mean, we can complain about all these things that are changing, but the fact of the matter is we've had the 40 of the most stable years that humanity has ever known practically. That's why we've got churches that are too comfortable, churches that are stuck, churches that just won't get a move on because we've gotten far too comfortable. We've, we've become very comfortable. We've now had the biggest disruptive year of our lives in 2020, hmm. right? And early 2021 is looking pretty interesting already, right? So, uh, so we are used to, as church leaders, I'm used to, to looking for ways to bring disruption to a comfortable and stuck church. Now I'm in the opposite place of needing to bring stability to a disrupted place, uh, while also using that disruption to hopefully propel us forward into a better future rather than wishing to go back to the past. And I think about so many pastors who are, are, are facing that situation right now and just, I don't know, getting down to some nuts and bolts for a second. How would you coach a pastor to go about having those conversations with their congregation? The, the, the conversations about moving forward into a preferred future, for instance? Right, yeah. yeah. Well, here's, let, let me give you a couple specific examples. Um, one, one technical um, that I'll get back. So remind me, I'm going to come back to a technical one because <laughs> I do this. I'm going to give you two and then I forget the second. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to download my memory to you. So the technical one we'll come back to. And the other one, uh, relational. As we have done this um, and we've gone through this season together and we've made all of these adjustments and these changes, um, the need for uh, community is more important than ever. Um, right now, for years now, many of us have been living our lives between two extremes. On the one side, more and more isolation. And on the other end, fueling the isolation is mass and social media. And now for the last year, that's been put into hyperdrive, where we've got one foot in isolation and one foot on mass and social media. And that is a really unhealthy place for us to be living between those two extremes. The healthy place is in the middle in community. And so if, as, as we as pastors share with our leadership that reality, what we need is a, a, a greater opportunities for community. We are, I, let's not worry so much about the program and let's worry, let, let's take a look at the people and what do the people really mm -hmm. need? Here, here's a quick example of that. Years ago, that, um, I was asked in a Q&A after a con conference session, uh, and the question was simply this, how do I fix Sunday school? Oh, okay. That's an interesting 
direct question. And I said, let me, uh, let me ask you a question before I answer your question. Okay. I said, why do you have Sunday school? She said, so that we can raise the next generation to know Jesus, uh, to love Jesus and know scripture. I went, that's a really good answer. I said, so here's my answer to your question. Then instead of asking, how do we fix Sunday school? Ask this question. How do, what's the best way to raise the next generation to love Jesus and know scripture? If the answer to that is by fixing Sunday school, by all means, fix Sunday school. But if the answer to that is something other than Sunday school, <laughs> then dump Sunday school and do the other thing. Mm. The point isn't to fix Sunday school. It's to help the next generation love Jesus and know scripture. So because of all the disruption, we've had to drop some programs, for instance, we can't do them anymore. So um, why not take a look at those and ask ourselves before we reinstitute that program, if we weren't going to start it brand new now, would we start it brand new now? Or mm. do we have, or does it really fulfill the mission? Uh, so, so that's, that's something we need to really, really be careful of. So I think, I think helping them understand that, you know, what this is really all about is, is really helpful. The second thing is technical. Um, we've learned some things technically during this season. If your church has gone online because you've had to, uh, do not stop doing that when things, um, start back up again, continue to do so. Now, there's a lot of people basically saying the church is going to be practically all online from now on. No, nonsense. Uh, no, we, we, we've got to physically be in the same room together, breathing the same air on a consistent basis when the air becomes safe again to do the, do so. Mm -hmm. um, you, there, there's nothing wrong with people attending online church. It's just not enough. There are things you cannot do online that you have to be in person for. And so if you're trying to help your congregation, for instance, why are we still having the camera? And it's like, you know, why not? We're all together again. Why do we keep doing this? And let them know, here are some of the things that the technical aspects uh, of, of, our, of our church do. Uh, you know, your kids and your grandkids, you want to see them come to Jesus. They're not attending church, right? Right. Do you realize that before they will ever walk into a church building, including ours, they will watch at least two sermons online. Mm. And if we're not online to show them that sermon, they will not show up. We might as well not exist. So do you want your kids and your grandkids to be reached for Jesus? They are a technical generation. They want to do that. And here's the other thing. Don't just put a stationary camera back at the soundboard so that you're seeing something from a distance. Put the camera where you want them to sit. Hmm. <laughs> wow. If your kids and grandkids were coming to this church and they were sitting in the back row with their feet up on the pew, pew in front of them, well, that'd be better than them not being here. But wouldn't you like if they wanted to come and sit in the first or second row? Yeah, I'd love that. Put the camera there. That's where you, you want them there. We can put them there. <laughs> yeah. The camera puts them there. So we need to connect to these personal things and to the relationships that matter to them and show how even these technological things that they may not understand are understood by the, by the kids and grandkids that they love. And that's how we're going to reach them. It's not the end product. Our goal is not to build an online community. Our goal is to use that one to reach people like you. Next time you're sick, we want you to be able to watch the service. Hmm. And those who don't know Jesus, we know they're going to check out a couple services beforehand. We want to give them a good enough experience that makes them say, I want to show up in person. So let's use it to do that. Carl, I want to go back to the idea that uh, a leader brings stability in times of turmoil. Can you give us just a, a couple of uh, maybe practical tips on what pastors can do to help bring that stability to their churches? Well, right now, that, that's one of the big, uh, the, one of the big challenges. Um, 
the, the first thing, and then I'll come back to it again, is going to be relational. Um, I, I've, got a, I've got a friend who's, um, she has a doctorate in neurobiology, and I, I hope I don't misrepresent what she told me, but I think it's close enough that it won't hurt anybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I actually asked her a few months ago as we were going into this, what's actually happening in, in our brains right now as we're experiencing this trauma? And she said, well, first of all, you're accurate. We are all experiencing trauma. She said, when we experience, when our brains experience trauma, um, we uh, are actually, the brain is actually incapable of processing new information. Hmm. People who have experienced trauma, they bring them in, they hook them up, they get their permission, obviously. And they just ask them, recount your traumatic story, just tell it to us. And as a person tells it, they experience low levels of that trauma again. And even at those low levels of trauma, just because, because they're talking through it and experiencing some of it, they watch and she says, it's not subtle, it's dramatic. The logic centers of our brain go dark and what lights up is our emotion and our action centers. They light up like a Christmas tree. So what you've got in, our, in your congregations is you've got a whole lot of people who are trying to figure out what's going on, but their logic centers, their, their actual physical brain, the way God made our brain in trauma is when you're in trauma, act. <laughs> when you're in, like, if you're in the battle, don't think through the strategy stop the bad man, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's why God made us that way because trauma is designed to have, you know, the bear is attacking the family. Don't sit there and design a bear trap, stop the bear, right? So action and emotion light up to get us to stop the bear. Uh, and then when things calm down, hey, let's put the logic centers to use to create a bear trap for the next time, right? That's the way God created us. So we're in the trauma right now. We're in those kind of action right now. And people are trying to figure out what's going on. And we, quite frankly, are neurobiologically incapable of processing new information. So as pastors, we've got a whole bunch of people who are in trauma, who are experiencing things they've never experienced before, who are disagreeing with friends and family members on issues they never thought there'd be an argument before. Who thought we'd have mask and anti-mask arguments? I mean, mm -hmm. this is just new <laughs> wherever you fall you can't deny this is really weird and new yeah. and why can't i get through to people on this well maybe you're not getting through to them maybe they can't get through to you maybe neither of you can get through to the other because we're not thinking through logically i i've noticed this myself in this last year i'm a reader i read two or three books a week i don't think i read six books last year I can't process the information as I'm yeah. reading it. It's really weird. I wrote one, but I can't read. <laughs> <laughs> I just realized the irony of that. Uh, <laughs> and it's a real interesting read too, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Yeah, um, yeah, because it's not processing new information. It's downloading information that's already there. Maybe that's the difference. I don't know. So uh, anyway, bringing stability. <laughs> Let me get back to that question. So here we've got people who are wanting to do something, their action and emotion centers are all lit up. So they're angry or they're hurt or they're frustrated or they're scared or something. And they want to do something about it because their emotion center is driving their action center and they cannot hear a, a logical explanation for new information. So mm -hmm. what do we do? How do we bring calm in that situation? And so I, again, I asked my friend, the neurobiologist, what do we do? And she also happens to be a pastor's wife. So she's got some real experience in this. And she said, what people need is um, to be with familiar people doing familiar things in familiar places. And the challenge right now is we can't do that. <laughs> so uh, when we can, she said, don't be in a hurry to do long sermons when everybody comes back again. They won't be able to process it anyway. 
do good sermons, but go back to familiar stories, comfort food stories from scripture, retell the story of Jesus. Just, just let the story waft over people. They need that, that love and that comfort and give them more time to sing together, to take communion together, to do the familiar rituals of faith in a familiar place. And that and I, I found that to be the case in the last couple of weeks, we've been able to go back into our building again um, and we can do it safely distancing and just physically being in the building and singing again together overwhelmed me. Absolutely overwhelmed me. I didn't realize how much I needed it and how much healing it brought to my soul. So, you know, pastors, we're trained. I was trained to offer explanations. And now I'm told that really isn't going to be as helpful as it used to be. Uh, uh, another day will come and the trauma will be gone and we'll be able to process new information. But for now, they need familiar people doing familiar things in familiar places. So for us as the church, whatever your church, for most of us, it's going to mean singing. It's for all of us, it should mean communion, whatever you know manner we take it in. And in other places, it's going to be kneeling or lighting candles. In another place, it's going to be raising of hands or speaking in tongues. You know, right? Everybody's got their own background, their own tradition, their own church uh, rituals that we do, the ways that we worship. Whatever we do that brings hope and comfort and helps us to connect with Christ and with each other, that's where the greatest degree of stability is going to come from. So, Carl, if people want to connect with you online, how can they find you? Yeah, my website is carlvaders.com. So as long as you spell my name right, that's the nice thing about having a name like Carl Vaders. I, I own Carl Vaders' name everywhere. It's carlvaders.com, Carl Vaders on Instagram, on, <laughs> on, on Facebook, on Twitter, you know, Gmail, Yahoo, you name it. I'll just put carlvaders.something and you'll find me. <laughs> and that, that is Vaders with a T, not with a D, because your first name isn't Darth. Exactly. Actually, years ago, we had a cat and we named the cat Darth. <laughs> so there was a Darth Vader's in the family. Well, we always like to close by, by asking our guests to offer uh, a word of hope. As, as you consider those who are sitting listening to this podcast today, what, what word of hope would you like to extend to them? Yeah. Um, slow down and take a nap. Uh, when this began, we all went into sprint mode and we needed to, we had to adapt real quick. I just told you our church four days, we had to be online. Um, and for a while we had to go at sprint mode and a lot of us either came close to, or actually did burn ourselves out. If you're still operating in sprint mode, uh, you are not going to last. Your church is not going to last. Your family is not going to last. You're going to do damage to yourself and everybody around you. Um, this pace of change is going to be a part of our lives for a good period of time. We've got two to three years of changing challenges ahead of us, even in the aftermath and recovery after the pandemic is over. And we need you strong. Uh, we need you healthy. And we need you and your family intact. And we care about that. Uh, we're not just saying that we need you strong because we need stuff from you, but because we care about you and you can't do that at sprint mode. So run a marathon pace, keep running, but slow to a marathon pace, which means every once in a while you, even a marathoner, they pause to get a drink of water. <laughs> a sprinter doesn't hundred yard, hundred meter dash. You don't pause for a drink of water in a marathon. They pause a couple times to replenish the liquids and get themselves a break and actually finish the marathon in better health and faster because they took the breaks. Mm. 
So taking a rest, taking a nap is not uh, an avoidance of productivity. It is part of our productivity and it is essential to our health. So let me encourage, especially all my small church pastors who bear a, 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 a wider a swath of responsibility in the church that our, our good friends in big churches do because we cover all the areas instead of just specific areas. Uh, we, we bear burdens in a different way than our big church brothers and sisters do. And so we need the rest at, at least as much as they do. So don't avoid that. We, we love you. We need you and we care for you. So take the rest you need. That's so good. You know, sometimes uh, that rest is what we need to, to take the time to grieve the losses of this last year to recover, yes. to, to heal. So thank you so much, Carl. It's just been a pleasure having you on and uh, laughing together and hearing the stories and uh, just pray the Lord's blessing on your future ministry. Thanks for coming on Hope yeah, Renew. Thank you, Carl, so much. Thank you, guys. And as always, we invite you, our listeners, to rate and review Hope Renewed in iTunes or your favorite podcast app and to share this podcast with your friends on social media. It's a great way to help us continue to bring hope to others. Thanks for joining us today. It is our prayer that your hope is renewed as you remember the great God whom you serve. PIR Ministries partners with God and the church in the work of pastoral renewal and restoration to cultivate new hope for healthy ministry lives. You can learn more about us at our webpage, pirministries.org, or email us at info at pirministries.org. Thanks for joining us for Hope Renewed, and remember, the hope Christ offers will never put us to shame. Mm -hmm.